say when you say open for business, what is that? What does that look like for you? So as, as a community trust, we grant around about thirty-five to forty million a year to community groups, and we do that in a whole range of different ways. Um, but normally, uh, most people come to us first for a quick grant or a quick response grant of under twenty-five thousand dollars, and they can do that through our website. So we will uh, they will send an application to us through that website, through that portal, and we will then respond um, within two to three weeks. So we've got a quick turnaround on those quick responses. You then enter into another um, area if you want a more substantial grant, about 25000 You can go through our normal granting application process and apply for grants um, to the community trust. And then we've got two other areas that we've just started to work in. One is called impact um, funding or impact granting where we will generally go out and solicit or find a special purpose um, a focus area we want to focus on and go and seek applications from groups that work in that area. So classic one for us has been uh, Haraki Golf gift projects. We have a specific fund with five million set up to try and kindle it and spark some interest in uh, regenerating the Haraki Golf. Mm. And we're not alone in that aspiration. But we'll set up that fund and then we'll seek uh, and go out and try and engage with people interested in getting involved with that from um, seabed restoration to um, advocating for uh, areas of the Gulf that should be protected to pest control to vegetation or eradication of um, weeds, all of that stuff, uh, preventing uh, pollution into the harbour. We'll get involved in that and go and seek applications. And then the, the latest and newest, um, the latest and greatest, the newest area is called impact investing. Mm. where we're taking some of our investment portfolio and using that to do good. So um, the most recent of those has been a investment we approved last Monday, actually, into the Salvation Army. So uh, we approved a $2 million investment in a bond, which will go to the Salvation Army to build community housing. We don't expect a return other than um, 2% from that, uh, whereas most commercial bonds you'd expect um, high and certainly from the rest of our investment portfolio, we're trying to get a high return. And so we're not doing that for the return, we're doing that because uh, it's a community need and we're using our balance sheet, if you will, to try and um, stimulate a good social outcome, so to do good with our balance sheet. So there's sort of the four years as to why you come to a community trust. You something really quickly that, that does good, that community granting higher dollar value, and then when we go out and try and achieve our um, strategic objectives around our, our focus areas. And that's either the impact investing or the impact funding, which are two different concepts. One using the balance sheet, one basically a, a, a grant. So you know, we've been doing it since 1988, and I think we're getting, we're getting pretty good at it, but um, there's always more to learn. So it's fascinating for me. Of course, there's about 20 things that I need to pick up from that, but I'll, <laughs> I'll talk about the Salvation Army and even um, the work that you're doing with Hardacre Golf. Um, it seems to be that a lot of how your approach to things is, is collaboration and leverage, so working with, with other groups. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Is that kind of the ethos? Yeah, um, it's one of the, the secret sources in good granting is collaborating with others. So in the case of uh, Salvation Army Bond, we can't claim credit for establishing that. Obviously, the Salvation Army and an intermediary called Community Finance got heavily involved in getting philanthropy and a range of different trusts involved um, in getting that off the ground. And we've come in, I guess, as as a bondholder and, and purchased that. Um, and actually, two of the three properties that it went to fund have been completed. So um, uh, the Royal Oak one and the Blackbush one have been completed. 
and the Westgate one's due to be completed next year. And that, that's us working with others to, to pull together a fund that can then go to build those community houses. Uh, and the need is enormous. So uh, in the report, that um, most recent report, there's something like 13,000 people waiting for community housing spots. So the supply and the demand is a massive mismatch. Um, in this project, we're just trying to help the Salvation Army get maybe another 120 spots um, up and available. So uh, the total project, I think, is around about $70 million to get those three facilities off the ground, uh, which the second one's now been open and the third one to come online. And so, you know, the, the benefits, downstream benefits from that investment, obviously healthy homes, um, less resource on the healthcare system, clearly happier people, and, and hopefully if they're in a better space, uh, their long-term futures, whether that's for employment or just contributing to, to the community at large, is, is going to be better off. So us, it's a no-brainer to try and do that. Um, our overall overall vision has been just enhanced lives within our within our areas, being Northland and, and Auckland. So that's kind of how that came about, the collaboration. Um, we can't claim credit for setting it up, but, but certainly... We're encouraged to be part of that, and we do a lot of work with the likes of Tyndale Foundation, um, Next Foundation that we're always looking to do stuff with. And, and the philanthropy sector itself is very collaborative through COVID. Uh, we got a number of calls umbrellaed by um, PNZ, our, our, our peak body, to talk about what was happening with the sector and where we could help out. Um, and that in itself just showed the collaboration. But we don't see ourselves curing all the all the ills here or having all the solutions. So. A secret to being a good funder, the secret sources of the collaboration. And my dollar plus a Tyndall dollar, hopefully can be matched maybe by a government dollar, and all of a sudden we've got, you know, we've got some scale. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, speaking of curing all the ills and solving all the problems, you know, when you're talking about even community housing and the supply and demand side of things, I mean, we could, we could spend all interview talking about that alone. Yeah. But where do you see, how do you see things working? Do you think that there needs to be more alignment between, you know, the, the philanthropic, uh, philanthropic sector, the government, uh, private sector? Do you, what, do you, what do you see? Is there a missing gap there? Oh, this housing one there. There are obviously gaps everywhere you look. So um, you you can be party to a lot of these things, but um, there's no silver bullet. Uh, if I take maybe some of the work we're doing in, in Northland and looking to expand, uh, it's, it's clear that it's not going to be us alone. So we do we do take part in, for example, um, ECA, the um, Environmental Agency, do a installation program which we've been funding for a number of years. So. Uh, if your house is in a state where it can actually receive insulation, um, the government would actually fund 70% of the cost to get that insulation put in. So it's about $3,000 thereabouts a home. Foundation North came along and said, well, if you can't afford the, the gap, which is the 30%, we will fund that gap for you um, if you're in Northland or South Northland um, home. And that, and that $300, although that doesn't sound like a lot, is the tipping point for a lot of people to get your insulation in place. That's been working wonderfully well. Um, thousands of houses in, in, in low decile areas that we've managed to, to help ECA to get that insulation in place. But now we're looking at the reject rate. So, so what happened to that 40%, and, and that's how hard it is, who don't get accepted because their house, their home, their body is not in a position to be insulated. And so that's where we're starting to turn our attention is actually that's a bigger need. If you can't get to the point where you need insulation because your roof leaks, because you've got... Um, interior walls which are not up to scratch that's where we can play another role of trying to get that that general housing stock up to speed 
um, let alone getting to the community house or the emergency housing um, stop. So, so in little ways we can help. We don't have a silver bullet and we don't have enough money to be a silver bullet. Um, and that's, that's classic. You know, we're actually working in that program with ECA, which is the government agency, uh, with um, Healthy Homes Tito Tokoro up north, who are doing the installations and now looking for ways to expand that program. Mm. Um, and I think that's what we've got to do, collaborate and expand the stuff that is working and, and work as much as we can, in that case, with Iwi and Hapu, which is, which is vital for it to be successful on the far north. Mm. You mentioned, uh, you know, you've been around since the the 80s, or the foundation has been around since the since the 80s. Can you take us back to that? Because it comes, you know, it's the late 80s. It's, uh, there's a bank element to it. So, isn't it isn't that meant to be a story about greed and excess? How did how did this come about? So, the government of the day, when uh, ASB Bank was sold to Commonwealth Bank of Australia, uh, the condition of that sale was that the money would remain in the trust. And actually, that's how our governance model was, was set up, was the minister of the day said, and I will appoint your trustees. So um, we have 15 trustees, all appointed by the Minister of Finance. We've just received our latest two. Uh, and every year we have a rotation of three to four of those trustees, uh, which, is, which is good in one way, in that we have always representation um, uh, on the board. And, and our trustees represent uh, communities in which they've, they've been working um, Bad in some other ways and that the turnover is quite high. If you, if you think of a commercial board, it's very unlikely that you'd lose a third of your, third of your board members every year. And so that, that refreshes our governance pot. Um, so the government that I said, okay, that's, that's what you need to do. You need to set up a structure where you uh, are a charitable entity uh, and our trustee and the, uh, the Charitable Trust Act give us that mandate to operate. But in return, we want you to make sure that your benefactors in all of those residents in, in uh, Northland and Auckland that they actually receive uh, from you some some charitable good, and so the trustee is quite wide in what it, what it enables us to look at. But the essence is do good in those communities, and we're not alone. There are twelve community trusts around the country. Uh, I think it's one of New Zealand's best kept secrets. Um, we're we're currently the largest uh, Rata Foundation in, in Canterbury, uh, Trust Waikato in, in Waikato, and uh, Bay Trust in uh, Bay of Plenty. And TSB and Taranaki, we're probably uh, the larger of the of the trusts, and we do come together and discuss things. But we were we were all started out of that same that same model. Uh, a bank was sold to um, a foreign interest or to a for profit entity, and in return, the proceeds were put into trust for the benefit of the community. Mm. And so that's how that's how it was originally was established. I think our original putier was around um, six uh, six hundred million, and that's now grown to be one point four billion. Uh, and we do try and grant around about that $30, $40 million a year and put the rest into the into the investment portfolio for future generations. So that's part of the other ethos is we're not here for the for the short haul, we're not here for the for the for the one year granting, we're here in perpetuity. Um, I've heard it described by my predecessor as the train that goes across the narrow ball and keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And so we're here in perpetuity and everything we do is designed around having that long-term horizon. Um, so that's, that's kind of the ethos of it. It started off with, with uh, the sale of a bank into a trust, uh, which is here to do good for the mm. communities in which, in which we've been given as our areas. So, so that thirty to forty million dollars a year is fairly sustainable because you've got that, you know, that big chunky pot in there. So, do you? You, you mentioned impact funds. So, do you have a, a investment strategy in terms of what you do with that core uh, money? Yes, yeah, so very well managed investment portfolio. We have uh, a, 
policy and, and an asset allocation which means it's quite diversified. So therefore, even through COVID, although we lost um, quite heavily on, say, the global equities market, um, there are elements of the portfolio which actually performed better. Uh, so in our exchange rate um, uh, portion and a diversified portion, the real assets actually were quite good. So by diversifying the assets, both globally, uh, New Zealand-wise, but across different categories, we can, we can manage these, um, these global crises probably a little bit better. And so we did that. We, we had a, a massive fall in um, uh, the start of COVID. So I think we lost almost $100 million off the portfolio. And by the end of, um, the end of May and June, we've recovered. And now we've, we're almost on par with pre-COVID. Um, so we have a very structured uh, and well-defined asset allocation managed by uh, both an asset consultant and, and in-house expertise and overseen by an investment committee with, with the appropriate skills. Um, the question is always whether or not we can earn more and the appetite for risk and return is the thing you've got to weigh out. So how much risk do we want to take versus how much return do we think we, we need to continue mm-hmm. granting? And at this stage, we, we have a target of around about 7 to 8% return or, or um, CPI plus 1, so that's 6%. And we're, we're just slightly ahead of our benchmark, but it's a big and diversified portfolio, uh, second to ACC and obviously New Zealand Super in terms of its size. Um, and they actually do have the, the capability in-house to manage this. We outsource uh, most of ours to the asset consultant. So, yeah, that, it's, a, it's a big job looking after it. it. Is there a changing philosophy? Like, are you under pressure to put, put more of that asset allocation into... I know it's a funny one because you, you, you take the... You've got to work the interest and then use the grant stuff and you're talking about the impact fund. But is there some pressure there to, to use that... Um, you know, that, that asset allocation to actually uh, help drive uh, domestic projects as well? Yes, I think that's where we do have we do have the impact investment now starting to play a role. So this, this portion we've carved out, which is, which is a modest 2% um, and about $30 million is, is now what we're trying to work on. How do we invest that in New Zealand on impact investment? So for impact, for social impact, not for financial impact. And uh, we, we've got two or three things running at the moment. We do have a, an, an RFI process where we're getting external people to come in and tell us, okay, if you appoint us, we can do the following with it. And we've also been trying to stand up a group in Paitokoro um, called Tipara uh, Tika, which is a joint uh, initiative with Tyndall Foundation, where they're focusing on iwi investment in, in Auckland. So in that case, it's a really, uh, uh, it's an industry sector impact investing in its infancy. It's a, it's a babe in the woods and we're trying to move it forward um, in our own little way. Uh, Waikato Trust, Trust Waikato has done also some work with Syria and Bay Trust and obviously um, Tyndall Foundation is pretty keen to get it started. So we can see all sorts of uses for this capital. Um, in the initial phases, just looking at Northland, we have projects such as aquaculture, uh, forestry, native forestry, uh, agriculture sustaining uh, food baskets for iwi, um, housing projects again. There's this whole raft of things that we can actually do. And it's just matching up that, that marriage breaking between a really good idea and some capital. And that's where you need a, a fund manager. In this case, we're looking um, to, uh, to Kaira Tika to, tika to actually give us that. Um, and, the, and the people running that, so uh, Jody and crew are doing a fantastic job at the first bit, which is here are all the opportunities. Now we need to marry it up with some capital. And that's the, that's where the matchmaking and the, and the real synergy comes together. You can find the right 
portfolio of people wanting to invest and you've got all these brilliant ideas, then, then the magic should occur. Um, but each one, in theory, should return the capital, but have a, have a very limited financial return otherwise, but have a fantastic impact and, and be the social impact mm. and one for good. Do you think that there is, you know, you mentioned that it's not about financial return, it's about well, profit isn't, the, isn't the, um, the main thing, it's really about the social impact. Do you see that those things are starting to align a little bit more, like there is consumer demand, there's, there's a whole lot of things that, will, will that start to make impact investing really the, the, sometime in the future, will that be kind of the, the way that you invest naturally? Yeah, I think there's a huge amount of interest in it, and it's a, it's a, it's a sector and area which has grown internationally. And so we're, we're somewhat behind. There's, there's a lot of these players in Australia starting to do similar, uh, similar funds. And, and some of the people who have responded to our request for a fund manager have come, um, come through Australia. So, so I think we're maybe catching up a little. Um, but wow, has there, has there ever been a better time to be an impact investing than, than post-COVID, uh, where the need is going to be great for capital? and the social need even greater. So maybe it's an idea whose time has, has genuinely come and, and we're playing a little role if, if other philanthropy organisations can play a role and maybe even the government can play a role and they have through Akina, um, then I think we could create a, a substantial and decent portfolio for good. Mm, that's um, really cool. So yeah, I think, I think it's time has come. Mm. Why do you think we like you go to somewhere like Luxembourg? You walk down a down a block and there's an impact fund. Why are we Why are we behind? Because aren't we meant to be innovative and cutting edge yet? Yeah, I think that we do have a lot of traditional conservative investment philosophy in, in New Zealand, uh, and there, there are pockets where it is. But I think on the whole, we've been quite pragmatic and conservative. If I look at our, our, um, our regulation, and even, even you can see today the benefits of being conservative is that we do have a considerable amount of capital and solvency sitting around in, in, our, in our banking sector and our insurance sector. So there are some advantages to being conservative, mm. um, but I think the appetite now is to move more away from that and say, well, actually, when returns are sitting at 2%, and you can take, you can take a judgment call here, if in... in you know, 2010, you could actually get 5.5% on interest. Well, you're probably better off to do that and, and take the return. Now you trade off and going, well, I'm going to get maybe 2 to 3%. And what if I just had a social impact and I don't really care about the 2% because it's, it's nominal. Mm. So maybe the falling return market plus this increase in conscience around making an impact in the community, those two things have aligned at the same time and, and that's maybe why it's now getting off the ground. Mm. Speaking of making a... An impact. What about you personally? I mean, surely, surely, with your uh, with your CV, you can have a you can have a very well paid job uh, at a bank or something like that. What, why was it important for you to get into into this sector? Oh, I, I was really keen when this job came up to go for it. I had had a uh, a role previously at uh, Kaipara District Council in the, in the north, and just saw how much uh, potential that there is in the communities in Northland. And let alone my um, my time that I've spent growing up in South Auckland, both of those being a focus for Foundation North really appealed to me. Mm. And, and you do get to a, please don't think that I'm I'm old and grey. I'm about to retire, but you do get to a point where uh, it's not necessarily all about the money, and it's about what you're able to contribute. And so that became uh, very attractive for me when when I was looking at uh, Foundation North. And, and last but not least, it's it's a big challenge. Uh, as I've described, maybe the investment portfolio being what you'd think of the hard things, you know, they're the hard dollars, they're the hard things. They're actually probably a little easier. The really difficult things are the soft things of how you grant 
and how you make those choices and have impact, they're actually incredibly difficult. Um, and hats off to all of all of those people who work in that funding area and, and trying to do good. They're really difficult choices. Um, I'll give you an example. We do run a, a, a group of youth leaders, specifically youth leaders in South Auckland, and we've given them the ability to actually make grants. So we said to this, we said to this group, and they're fantastic young individuals who do an outstanding job. We said, we'll give you fifty thousand dollars to figure out how you grant it to your communities, which includes you need to go out and promote the fund. After you've promoted it, you then need to receive applications, vet them, and then be the deciders where this fund goes. And the very first uh, round, they had something like twenty or thirty applications. They couldn't decide between the twenty or thirty. They were in the in the camp of saying, "I don't wish to necessarily pick a winner or a, or a best. We think the best thing for the community is to make sure everybody gets something." So they prorated all of the funds there, so that nobody missed out, which I think is incredibly incredibly honourable thing to do. But just proved how difficult it is actually for funders to say no because your mm. your heart your heart immediately says say yes to everything, but mm. your funds are limited. Uh, and I think this is true of a lot of the uh, agencies, government agencies. You know, your funds are limited. And you must ration healthcare, being one of the one of the um, standard examples in New Zealand. Is there's going to be a limited amount of funds for healthcare? How do we prioritise and ration that, that funding over time? So the investment side, which you think would be the hard side, is probably the easier. And actually, how you grant is really difficult. Mm. Um, interestingly enough, the Pacific leaders have uh, done their second round of granting. Uh, and they have actually managed to do slightly more to certain certain um, sectors. Uh, and that's, I think, part of their development is that eventually you do have to say, we're going to try and focus on where there may be greatest need and um, and hold back, hold back to some of those areas that maybe are not as great a need but could find alternative sources of funding. Um, and that's largely what we're doing. We've, we've agreed with our trustees, we're going to have these three or four areas to focus on, not to say we'll ignore the rest, but we will focus on trying to have an impact of fewer areas because we just don't have enough money to do everything. That's a good point. And when you talk about the, like even, you know, an endowment fund over a billion dollars and 30, 30 to $40 million a year, it's all kind of the big scale stuff. Can you talk, you know, maybe maybe about some of the individual stories that you've been really touched by? You know, because you do, it's, we're talking about one end of the scale, but, you know, it's that community impact. Yeah, I think the, the, the landmark one for us most recently has been City Mission, so the, the home, um, home ground build um, down Hobson Street. So that's, that's been the foundation's largest single grant on record. So it was almost $10 million. Uh, the project obviously has a range of different aspects to it, um, but our trustees felt that the overall impact that it could have um, for both the homeless um, and those in need, uh, rehabilitation, health, all part of the build that's going on down Hobson Street. Um, it's going to be a fantastic example of what you can achieve through both uh, government funding as well as philanthropy and, and community trusts. So I guess that's our biggest single um, grant. And it was, it was the, this funding decision which took the least amount of time. So having seen the plans and having seen uh, what it would do for uh, all of those homeless in the central city, but also what it could do for health um, and rehab and the other aspects they've got in there, uh, really important. Um, maybe some of the small grants are just as impactful, but, but you don't think of them in municipal phases. I reviewed a grant in my very first week here uh, for Great Barrier Island. And uh, why would you think we need to actually support a radio station on Great Barrier Island? But for the local community, it's really important. Um, I've seen applications for uh, toilet blocks 
where others wouldn't fund them and we funded them. You go, well, what's the impact there? Well, for the community, it's really important. Um, during COVID, probably the most striking examples were all food. Uh, so Ngāti Hini Health Trust came to us and said, our most at risk uh, population is remote and their biggest need is food. And so we assisted them in order to, to um, both create an access pathway so they could actually get out to the various marae and to um, Kamatua uh, and deliver that food. And we also provided with funding so they could actually buy that food. Now, the impact that had was just um, fantastic throughout Northland. They were serving iwi outside of their own rogi uh, and uh, doing so around the common purpose, which is we need to look after our people. So we are, we are able to achieve big things like home ground and then little things like, you know, Great Barrier um, radio station or toilets at the golf club. You know, these sorts of things are the span of, the span of funding that we're able to give away, which is it's the magic of being a community trust. But, but along the way, you do have those difficult choices. Do we fund this or do we fund this? Mm. We're able to span that at the moment, which is, which is great. And long may it last with the investment portfolio until it is, until it is what it does. There's some really, uh, there's some sad stories with uh, mainly around food supplies during uh, during COVID, um, people just falling in between the gaps, really. And, and so it seemed to be that a lot of community groups, even gyms stepping up and, you know, filling in, filling in that gap. Have we seen kind of a fundamental shift, do you think, from COVID in terms of, you know, the lay of the land and that community support? Yeah, I think that, the, and there is a, there's a huge amount of work being done around how we uh, maintain that new model. Um, but I think the demand for, for food, you, you have your head in the sand if you didn't realise it's just gone through the roof. Um, but I think that we found a response, and that's what I noticed in Northland is the amount of groups that could pivot, maybe they're intending to do this pathway, they've pivoted and done food in order to meet the need. And that, that common sense of purpose and um, community teamwork is there. So I think that's been, the, that's been the magic through COVID that we just don't want to lose the collaborations that have occurred with those community groups, whether it's between Hapu and Iwi or whether it's between community groups in South Auckland, they're the bits that we don't want to lose. <coughs> when, when will that need for, for food um, reduce again? I can't see it, um, I can't see it necessarily for any um, quick response there. I think it's going to be a, a wee while away. And, and as we hit the new year, a lot of the community groups we fund had enough reserves, and the surveys we've done had enough reserves for six to 12 months. So we're definitely expecting that they will come back for additional funding through the early part of next year. And so we're trying to anticipate that and, and again, be flexible. So that, you know, most, most community groups, they, they operate on um, a number of volunteers. Mm. They operate with, with limited reserves. And so something like COVID, where if you relied on events, you've lost your income. Mm. Um, if you relied on gaming machines, you've probably lost a lot of your income. So a lot of sporting organisations relied on that, those gaming trusts. That's obviously um, reduced. Lotteries Commission, you know, they're over 300 million a year. If that reduces, gaming trust reduces no events, that eventually will take its toll on the, on the sector, on the community sector groups, where there's sports, arts um, groups. And so that's what we're sort of expecting. Uh, most of them have pivoted and found alternative ways to fund or cut that cost. But we are expecting to see that next wave in, the, in probably in the new year, if not sooner, as they run out of reserves. Yeah, I imagine like even discretionary donations and that kind of thing would be would be hit. And as well, you've got the you got extra demand. Yeah, and the other probably unsung hero of, of uh, philanthropy in New Zealand is still corporate New Zealand. So you know, over four hundred million dollars is contributed by corporates, 
and then probably their, their corporate social responsibility funding, probably another 150. So you're, you're talking a pretty big sector than corporate New Zealand, which also will be pulling back um, maybe some of that. So, you know, how do, how do we protect all of that and make sure that it continues on? It means that we do need to have a robust commercial sector mm. that will support the community sector. What's your... <laughs> I don't want to go t- down too far down the track of negativity but if it's you know if we're talking about re- the reality of the situation then that's that's okay but what's your what's your feeling i mean there's a lot of a lot of commentary about the helicopter money that's going to run out the wage subsidies that kind of thing there's a lot more impact on that commercial sector um how do you do you think that we're going to go through a particularly tough time yeah i think it'd be crazy not to think that we won't have a tough time uh even i look at the the international portfolios we've got, and I wonder why some of the global markets are still holding up. And it is because they have substantial fiscal, um, uh, you know, input and injection of, of cash, and we're no different. So, yes, that yes, that would that would worry every New Zealander as to what happens at the end of that. At this stage, I think our response has been, you know, really appropriate. I spoke about that philanthropic group that, that we met after and through COVID, and talked about how can we help and where are the gaps. Mm. And we'd meet one week and we'd go, actually, we think we found it. We found it. It's called food. And we're going to all put our money behind food or it's now housing. And each week, uh, you know, to their credit, the government came out and, and put in place a policy and some funding that addressed some of those gaps. And so I think that uh, you'd have to be um, you have to be pleased that, that we've responded appropriately for most of those groups. Will that continue and, ha- and how deep can our pockets be um, is, is the question. There's no doubt that we have a strong, we have a strong, our financial position as a country so we can certainly last maybe longer than others uh, but but there will be a limit to that um, I always joke with, with my daughter that it's not me who has to repay it it's probably going to be her but I think we you know we do have a long time in which we can actually look at it and I think these tough times will pass uh, most of the predictions that there'll be a slow and um, steady recovery as opposed to a rapid recovery I think that's what we have to plan for mm. uh, plan for different scenarios but expect that we could well be on the slow, steady path, maybe the odd wobble along the way. So I think we'll come out of it, uh, and it's a matter of how we get through this period where maybe we do dip after Christmas, uh, and the government will have to keep uh, some of that funding in place. But we do have a, we do have a pretty good balance sheet as a country. Do you see a silver lining in that sense as well? I mean, we come off the country comes off looking pretty well globally. Uh, do you think that there will be more potential? Is there going to be uh, money coming in from, from overseas, more investment? Yeah, and I, you, you would think that uh, if your nearest neighbour can open their doors and, and overcome their problems, that, that's, uh, as everybody said, that's where we should start. You know, mm-hmm. Our nearest neighbour is still probably our highest tourism traffic. Um, but I, I, funnily enough, I actually was up in uh, Russell visiting um, some of the community groups and uh, one of the uh, hotels up there was actually saying they have fully booked through domestic tourism until the end of November. Wow. So <laughs> as much as I'd like to say that it's international visitors, maybe the silver lining here is that for New Zealanders, it's, it's a great opportunity to go to those places that you haven't been for a while or to revisit them. Um, and... and uh, if, they, if we can all do that, I think that will actually also help us get through this. So I would encourage people to go visit those favourite spots in mm. for a while. And apart from money from tourism, do you think that there's other, like you've got the likes of the tech companies that, you know, with Microsoft putting server farm here. Do you think that there's, 
is there going to be money? Is there capital around the world that that is looking for a stable place to go? Even in, to, in even potential impact funds, as we mentioned, out of Luxembourg and something like that. Do you think there's going to be more interest? Yeah, it will be. Our, our number one inhibitor, all of that, has always been our size and our, our scale. But if you can find services uh, that could be uh, housed in New Zealand, I think that a lot of those international markets will do it. Particularly, as you don't require. We've, we've all proved through COVID that we don't have to necessarily be face to face. We can resume. So we can zooey and hooey and, and uh, online. So I think there's going to be every opportunity for those companies to come look here. Um, you know, the Bowmies of this world who, who pulled out probably would regret that if they look at what's happening in New Zealand now. Mm, very good point. Very good point. And in terms of how we do work now, did, has, was there a shift for you in terms of how you worked with the team and uh, even how you did deals? Yeah, I, I, I honestly can't say enough thanks to the Foundation North team. We moved within days to be working from home and, it, and did that pretty much seamlessly. Um, with the old chair and screen that we had to take home to, to bolster our home offices, we were able to actually do almost all of our work remotely. Um, we'd love to be face-to-face with the community, but it just wasn't possible. And um, as, we, as we wound down Allendale House, which is where we're, where we're housed, and uh, then reopened it, again, almost seamless. Uh, the community groups, uh, we had our first uh, board meeting uh, by Zoom uh, within two weeks, I think, of going into lockdown. And it was probably the biggest agenda and got through it in less than the allocated time. So I think we, pr- we proved ourselves that we could do it. Uh, in many cases, it helped. So we actually ran a range of advisory groups talking about some of our focus areas uh, on Zoom, actually at the Zooey running. And some of the people who wouldn't otherwise have been able to attend were able to attend that call. So particularly our Kamato, who is um, based in the far north, was able to join most of those things. Normally he would be stuck in traffic mm. at Auckland trying to get down here. I guess if there was one observation I would have about uh, um, lockdown was the lack of traffic really to make it an enjoyable place to walk and cycle. Mm. Um, and if I had one policy I'd like to pull out, I'd, I'd like the car to stay one to come back. Mm. Yeah, it was quite amazing. I think... Um uh, and even the environmental, some of the environmental benefits as well. It was nice to be able to see, you know, some clear skies and, and birds. And hear them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really... And what about the... You know, it's a really uncertain time. It was an uncertain time during lockdown, uh, but it still is. Uh, do Was that a challenge to, to your leadership as well? To, did you... Did you find that you had to, and I had to had to kind of work through that with people? Yeah, I, me personally, in the leadership uh, group here and our trustees, I, you know, I, I think you don't get you don't get paid to do stuff you do in, in business as usual. You get paid to deal with the type of things that happen through COVID. So, um, you know, lots of scenario planning and extra communication and, and trying to keep people involved. I love that challenge um, that it presented, and I think some some of the team here are the same. So it's a matter of whether or not you see it as an opportunity or whether or not you see it um, as something else. And in our case, we, we've just said we're going to embrace this and roll with it, and mm. we're incredibly lucky to be able to keep doing our work. Um, you know, I have friends who were getting laid off from jobs and various bits and pieces, and we were still able to do ours. So I, I think from our point of view, we're very grateful uh, that, that the opportunity presented itself that we could keep working and keep doing our stuff. And we were able to help through COVID with those groups that needed it, whether it was food or, um, or other things or pivoting their, their funding. We're still in a position where we're able to help um, 
So that's that's huge, you know, when you're able to come to work and do good and keep working at the same time, um, all from the all from the company to kitchen, as it was then. Uh, fantastic. So I think we embraced it, ran with it, and from my point of view, that the challenge of doing that um, was actually was actually pretty exciting, um, and for our communities to be able to help them, fantastic. Mm. Do you, have you noticed? Are we more empathetic? Are we kind? Mm. Are we are we kinder, Manaki? Uh, mm. Yeah, I, I think that some of those elements you, you've got to try and protect them and hold on to them post COVID. Um, so even even in simple things like uh, when you do go for a cycle, does does the motorist actually give away to you, or, or do they try and try and say we want the road back? Um, I think that. Overall, New Zealanders are a pretty kind bunch. I've, and I think the more that I have to do with uh, both Hapu Iwi in, in the north and in, in South Auckland, that's what I sense is that monarchy is coming through loud and clear. Um, and so I, I personally believe New Zealanders are that way inclined, full stop. Um, and long may that continue. I, I see evidence of that in the community groups. I was up at uh, where they're replacing at Kawakawa, the Hundavasa uh, toilets with a new build. And the community has just come together there to do volunteer work. Uh, and, and volunteering across New Zealand is huge. But in that project, they've, they've brought together all walks of life to try and help develop what is a special facility in, in Kawakawa. Um, would that have occurred anyway? Maybe. Maybe maybe pre and post-COVID. But right now, it, it's continuing on. And let's hope it does way past the crisis that we've had. Yeah, I feel like I think New Zealand is generally a, a very kind bunch. Um, and that's punctuated in all sorts of ways through the country. Mm. So, yeah, I think we are. I think you are. You've been kind so far. I will see. Is there also, do you get a sense that there are new, like, okay, we're talking about different different sectors. We're talking about, you know, uh, charitable organisations. We're talking about the commercial sector. Is there going to be, are there going to be new styles of business models forming? Are there going to be some really smart people that have come out of corporate jobs? They, you know, they've had a, even the word purpose is bandied about a lot, but people are more conscious maybe of, um, you know, the impact that they're having and, and wanting to do something that kind of, you know, that they feel good about. Are we going to see um, some changes in the landscape? If I, if I play back what happened in COVID, those in need, we're still the ones in need. So if it's highlighted anything, those in need got amplified. So the need got amplified. Um, so, you know, for us, that has been uh, Māori and Pacifica. What got amplified in the, in the regenerative environment space was, wow, you take all the cars off the road and you can hear the birds sing. You know, so, so those things became even more apparent that we need to do something with climate change, that we need to do something with um, those groups that, that have inequitable access to healthcare. So the, the, the striking thing to me was it was like it stuck a post-it note straight in front of you and said, you've got to do something about these two areas. Um, and so I think that's where that's where it's really helped, and it's galvanised our trustees and, and our group around saying we need to get on and have an impact in those two areas. So you know we do need to support more of those regenerative pro- projects that that will actually avert some of the some of the climate change problems that we've got, and we do need to work with with Murray and engage with them to get more done. Um, and that's across not just youth uh, programs around the environment they've got, or or just Mariah. So you know. The need is there, it just got amplified. Um, and that's that may be the lesson. 
is not necessarily anything new, but wow, so it was a reminder that we need to get on with it. Brilliant. All right, one last question. A question about questions, but for my next interview, um, I'm not sure who that would be yet, but is there a question you'd like me to include in there? In your next interview? Mm. Ooh. Uh, I, the one for me is always, where is New Zealand in 2050? Mm. Uh, we've got this we've got this saying which is we will always look backwards to stay in the present but then look forward mm. and so as you've done you know I look back at 1988 and say who, who the founders of Foundation North what were they thinking did they have this in mind that we would be like this in 2020 and do our current trustees really have a look on 2050 and say what are we going to be like in 2050 mm. um, and I think if you can look back to understand how you got to where you were to then go but we could be here um, that maybe is the secret to how we move the country forward as well. So always look at the 30-year plan. Don't get hung up on what's happening today or tomorrow. Mm. Um, crises are short-term. Um, the country is, is going to be here in 2050, and it's what we make of it. And I, I speak with great hope because the youth that's coming through have far more ambition than ever. Um, you know, when, when, I was, when I was younger and growing up, I thought I had ambition, this group, coming now uh, in their you know, 15 to 25 group, they have boundless energy and incredible vision for what they want the country to look like. And they do have the ability to make change. Um, and, I, and I say that with real real passion and conviction. I know a lot of them uh, that we've dealt with in community groups, there's some real gold coming through in that youth group. Mm. We, just, we just need to help it along its way. Really cool. Can you paint a bit of a picture that you see when you look at New Zealand in 2050? I think we will. I think we will have cracked it. I think we we are an incredibly talented nation and tenacious. Uh, we work really well uh, generally together. Uh, I can see it being very prosperous, but we will have to be we'll have to be really careful about um, how many people is too many people. There's some difficult choices to be made about rationing some of those things, particularly natural resources. Uh, for the first time ever, I went, there was a, a place where you actually have to book. There's an attraction down south had to book to the attraction and only took six visitors at a time. And, and that to me said volumes about where we've come, where previously you'd come to an attraction and there would be thousands of people trampling over ground. We're now saying, actually, we're only going to take six and seven and do this responsibly and not ruin the, not ruin the environment in which we're going across. So I think we'll become smarter um, and, and continue that courtesy towards the environment. That would be fantastic.